welcome to Shattered Lives, an informed, conversational, cutting-edge radio show in touch with today's issues that impact the lives of crime victims, addressing the aftermath of crime, forging a path for hope, building awareness, and empowering listeners for the future. This is Donna Argor, a.k.a. Lady Justice, your host, with my co-host, Delilah Jones, president of ImaginePublicity.com, welcoming you to today's show and to our library of weekly archive shows. It is our, our primary goal to make a difference. And uh, yes, indeed, ladies and gentlemen, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Uh, whenever you happen to be listening to this, I welcome you to another edition of Shattered Lies Radio on this Saturday. And uh, I told, told a little fib there in my intro because Delilah, unfortunately, is not with me today. I'm flying the plane solo, so I'm sure we're going to make it through, but she sends her regards. Uh, she happens to be traveling right now, and I'm sure she will be listening um, at a later point. Um, but I have to tell you that we have our um, favorite repeat offender, repeat guest, um, <laughs> uh, Dwayne Bowers, a licensed professional counselor, uh, specializing in uh, working with a uh, trauma victims with missing persons. Um, he is uh, a, a, a certified clinical hypnotherapist as well and um, seems to be off um, on the road doing many, many um, good things in terms of a variety of different conferences, and so he doesn't get to stay home and uh, get into any trouble. Uh, <laughs> but today... Um, and I think um, we have him, this may be something like our seventh show with him, and to to be repeating with a guest that often shows you the caliber of the guest. So um, I don't often have someone, it just shows the, the breadth and the depth of knowledge that someone has for our topic matter. So um, we are going to be talking uh, about a very, um, I guess you would say a sensitive topic, but something that touches many, many homicide survivors as well as other crime victims and people who are grieving. And that is the topic of, of, of long-term um, family interactions. And just because someone's um, um, murder or particular trauma or crime happened way down the road, it doesn't necessarily mean that everything is uh, rosy, even with the passage of time. And I think we're going to learn a lot. So with that, good morning, Dwayne. Thank you for being part of Shattered Lights Radio once again. It's a pleasure to have you. Good morning, Donna. It's great to be here again. And I do, I agree with you. I think this is a topic that most people don't think about because you think when a, a crime occurs, um, uh, once, once, perhaps the funeral's over once perhaps the, the perpetrator is caught and, and the sentence and whatever, people think, okay, it's over, and it's not. Um, the long-term effects of the grieving and the grieving traumatic uh, loss um, uh, change the family uh, entirely for, and it can be actually for generations. So thank you for having well, me. Well, I don't know whether that's good or, good or bad, but I think maybe for my benefit, because I might have confused things as well in my mind, um, before we get, get into it in depth, could you explain to our audience what the difference would be in terms of looking at this from a trauma perspective versus a grief perspective? Sure. Um, 
so if you experience a lot of grief, the definition of grief is the process of adjusting to a loss. So it really doesn't matter what that loss is. If you change locations, if you, uh, your kid moves out, if uh, you lose someone to a homicide or a suicide, the loss, is, the, the grief is a process of adjusting to a loss. And, of course, with the different kinds of losses comes a very different kind of intensity. But when that loss is traumatic, in other words, the loss is due to a traumatic event, such as homicide, suicide, accident, uh, disaster, terrorist attack, those kinds of things. Um, then we're talking about something called traumatic loss and traumatic grief. And, of course, the trauma then complicates the grieving process. Now, one of the basics that we do understand about traumatic loss and traumatic grief is you cannot grieve until you resolve the trauma. So if a person is traumatized by their loss, they have to work through the trauma before they can grieve. I'll give you a schematic to think about. Those of you that know the, um, um, the hierarchy of needs, that, that pyramid, um, it, right. the bottom is, is food, clothing, shelter. The next one is safety and security. That's trauma. And then the next one is belongingness, and that's grief. So I can't grieve the loss of something unless I believe it belongs to me or I belong to it. And safety and security, I, as long as I am traumatized, I do not feel safe. So I need to resolve the trauma before I can move up to that next level of, of belongingness and grieving the loss of, of the thing. So I don't know if that... And you can be stuck that. in that place for like years, Dwayne? So oh, that, absolutely. Is that Maslow's um, hierarchy or... Yes, it is, Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. Actually, I think if he knew back in the 50s when he developed it that we'd still be using it, he would have put royalties on it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, too bad. Sorry. (laughs) Well, at least we're using it for our our benefit, so I I think that's important. But so with regard to that safety and security aspect, um, we might think that we're – Okay, we we have food to eat, we have a a stable home, but is that what we're talking about when we say safety and security, or are we talking about other things like per per uh, perpetually making sure that all the doors and windows are locked mm-hmm. and and mm-hmm. you know looking over our shoulder? Is it that kind of thing where we're traumatized exactly. by that event and we can't seem to get past that to feel comfortable? Absolutely, you're you're right on target. Remember that um, the symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder are things like hypervigilance, waiting for the other shoe to drop, a negative worldview, um, and, and these are these are the new ones that came out in 2012. Um, uh, the the, the um, it, always trying to uh, trying to not focus on it, but it's all you can think about. Um, um, uh, or, or you're having dreams or, or nightmares or flashbacks or whatever, all of those make you feel unsafe. You're not in control. That's the word I want to say, control. When we're talking about sure. safety and security here, it's how much control do I believe I have over my life. The more I believe I did not have control over the event that occurred, the more traumatized I am. So that's stays with me because then after the trauma, I don't believe I have control over my life. So what we're really looking at here as far as safety and security is the idea of how much control do I believe I have over my life. And that can carry on with us from the traumatic event for years and years and years. 
so it could be hypervigilance, expecting something else to happen. It could be dreams and nightmares. It could be um, even just emotional um, safety. I loved someone and they were murdered and I hurt so much that I never want to hurt like this again. And so I don't feel safe loving someone else. Um, it can even be spiritual. So um, it can happen on, on many levels. And, you know, when we work with trauma, we actually have to work with all three levels, the physical, the emotional, as well as um, uh, mental and spiritual. So, um, yeah, mm-hmm. you're right on target with that. Well, that, that, that's a good framework um, for us to start with. Um, I think everybody knows this um, intellectually, but maybe we need to paint the picture a little bit about the fact that everyone, and even if we take one particular family, um, everyone within that family will grieve differently. And how right. how might that how might that play out? How might that look, Dwayne? Just to give people an example, because maybe especially when we're in the acute phases of that, we don't understand the reaction of our sister, our brother, our mother, our father, our cousin, whoever it is. How can you have that reaction when, when, when I? It's so obvious to me that I'm having this kind of reaction. Mm-hmm. Um, it, uh, of course, how we respond to any situation has to do not only with how we were nurtured and and our experience, um, but it also has to do with the meaning and value that we give the event. So we're going to respond differently based on the meaning and value we give the event. So let's say someone who is elderly um, who, who dies of a long-term illness for one uh, child, adult child of that person, um, who was their caregiver. Remember that caregiving means that that's my life. I'm taking care of this person. Now the person's not there. I may grieve a whole lot differently than another child of that person who wasn't around geographically, um, maybe took care of all of the bills and that sort of thing, but wasn't as attached to the person and sort of sees as, well, they lived in a long life, they had a happy life, um, it was time for them to go. The, the meaning and value that those two people are giving that event are completely different. One sees it as, oh, my God, my life is going to change now and I don't know what to do with it. The other one is, this is natural, this is normal, and um, I'm glad she had a full life and we're moving, we're moving beyond this. So does that kind of show the difference? Yeah, so it really has to do with the level of involvement to some extent. Is um, does a person's personality type uh, equate at all with how how they might um, grieve or 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 react to a traumatic situation? Absolutely. Um, you know, if you have a um, um, for me, for for example, I'm I'm um. Maybe not personality so much, but I I have been accused of being ADHD. But I do have a personality type that's known as sensation seeking. I want every experience I can have in my life, and I didn't find this out until my fifties. Um, and, oh. and that's why that's why I don't stay at jobs for more than three years. I do very well at every job. I get to the top, and then say, okay, been there, done that. Let me do something new. And so so mm-hmm. with that kind of mentality, if if I'm dealing with a loss. I'm going to focus on the uh, business of the loss. Okay, I'm going to arrange the funeral. I'm going to make sure all the things, you know, everything's in order. I'm going to make sure that um, 
all of the all of the accounts are taken care of. Da, 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 da. I'm going to get into the work of it. I'm going to get busy with it, and um, that's going to be the way that I process this loss, the way I adjust to this loss. While someone else mm-hmm. may be very emotional and um, come from an emotional place, um, you know, we come from three places: emotion, intellect, and um, and sort of a problem solving. I'm the problem solver. I'll get in there and I'll work. The intellectual gets in there and says, well, you know, she lived a good long life. They, they try to make it okay by thinking it through. And then the emotional Kind of rationalize thinks, it and yeah, put exactly. it in a place and move on. Yeah, I yeah. think I'm like you too. I would kind of roll up my sleeves and, and do what I can and kind of put the yeah. emotion part aside. But I don't know. I'm just seeing, you know, and perhaps a little a little later on I, I can – sort of use my family as an example because we're all of the people in my family of course are very different personalities and and you know some come from very different generations and all of that so that that tends to really um make for uh sort of like a a very diverse soup of people trying to deal with the with the same with the same issue and it like i say it isn't always easy and the expectation you know, I may have expectations um, of, uh, you know, a certain degree of interaction or involvement and other people are just not there. So it, it's it's very hard. It's very hard, I have to admit. Um, but I, I wondered um, if, if we might be able to – well, I think we just touched on this. One of my questions was to explain the roles that certain family members might take on for example, mm-hmm. like you just alluded to, the, the business part of it and the emotional, what what roles might there be with regard to a, a homicide, you know, both in the acute phase and longer term, and what, what roles would, would different people maybe take on so that people that are just new to this would be able to identify, oh, okay, I understand now, that's why they're they're doing that piece. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm going to come more from my experience than from research on this, so I'm just prefacing that. Okay. Um, uh, sure. But what I have noticed is um, the problem solver, like me, tends to get very focused on finding the perpetrator, um, doing whatever is necessary to finding the perpetrator, and making sure they go to, j- uh, to, to, to trial and make sure that they get held accountable for what they have done. And they, get, they put all of their eggs in that basket. They tend to... And um, so they're looking for leads. They're, um, um, you know, constantly uh, trying to, to solve the crime. Remember I said it's about control? So if someone has mm-hmm. taken control over my life by killing my loved one, for, for a person who really needs control, the way to get my control back is to find that person and hold them accountable. Others may need to be more... Um, uh, maybe more into, um, and, and again, like you said, generation, the generations respond differently, but uh, perhaps a wife would need to be much more emotional. Need, I mean, look at the change in her life. If she's always been married to this man and he's now dead, um, look at what she has to learn to do. She never had perhaps, especially an older generation, may not have had to take care of the house, may not have had to take care of the car. Suddenly there are all these new roles just for living life that she has to learn um, just to get through day-to-day that he used to take care of. So her focus is going to be much more on those kinds of things, um, perhaps, and, and adjusting to the loss in that way. Um, 
someone else um, may may um, um, be more uh, want, they want to make this loss have a, a different meaning and value, and so rather than focusing on what a horrible thing this is and what it did to my family, I need to make this this event have a positive meaning, and so they may uh, become an advocate. They may um, you know start doing different activities that help others who might be in the same situation. So. Um, again, mm, that's me. Like, and yes, exactly. And that's how that's how you get a sense of control over a situation you had no control over. Um, and it also right. benefits others. And 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 this is this is the way that you have adjusted to the loss and that you have grieved the loss. So um, yeah, people people respond in, in a, a variety of ways. Homicide, uh, particularly, um, changing laws. Um, if there is something about the law that um, didn't I, and I'm going back to like my my work with missing children. If if a child is is abducted and then found uh, deceased, if there was not a law in place that would have helped to protect that child, then the parents may get become advocates to to change the law so that it doesn't happen to another child. So absolutely, there are many permutations. You can start a nonprofit of your own to you know help. Help and, and so many people, so many people do that. Um, right. But is there is there an ability for different family members to be able to recognize? Well, well, that's the way they're dealing with it, or are they just kind of disillusioned that you, you, X person is not reacting the way I think they should, or I thought they would, that kind of a thing. Are, mm-hmm. are people just too immersed in their grief to be able to see that the sister, the brother, the mother, the father, um, they're they're dealing with they're dealing with it differently? And this this I mean to me this may cause cause dissension. Are we able to to see that, or is it years down the road we might be able to perceive? Oh, that's the way they were dealing with it, or do they never develop that insight, Dwayne? Well, I think that. More than just family, I think that depends on the individual and how much, um, quite honestly, how narcissistic they are. Um, if they care enough about the other person to try to think through why are they behaving this way, then then they may start to realize, oh, I understand this is why. But but they may be into themselves so much in their own grief and their own process that they don't have the energy or the um, desire or the um, ability to extend past their own grief and their own experience. And here's another thing. Your, and, and I'm going to use you as an example. Your work okay. makes me, and I'm making this up, but your work makes me uncomfortable. I have filed this loss in a place that I can deal with it, and every time I look at you and what you're doing, I have to revisit that, and that hurts, that makes me uncomfortable, and I don't want to do that. I have filed it away. I want to leave it there. And every time I see what you're doing, you stir that up a little bit. And that makes me uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. So if I can, I just need to kind of 86 shift. I just need to kind of put you out on the periphery and say, yeah, that's nice. Go, go ahead, do what you're doing. Um, and, and, and not connect to you because it makes me feel. And I don't want to do that. I've, I've dealt with this in my way, and I don't want it uh, kicked up again. Does that make sense? Right. Well, yeah. that yes, that that totally makes sense for particular people, and um, but I think 
and I I would accept that, but I just think that they people that might feel that way need to acknowledge that that's what what I'm doing or what the the other advocate is doing, and it's okay and it's good and it's a positive thing for that person and for 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 the public and not and not view it as negative. That's what I'm saying. Well, in a in a perfect world, wouldn't that be nice that everyone would be compassionate and be able to extend past themselves? Unfortunately, that's not the world we live in. And quite honestly, um, and and I only will take a minute with this, but quite honestly, we are in a climate right now where we are told anything different than us is wrong, and we are, we are allowed to hate it, and um, it's all about me. And we we have a leader in particular who is saying this is the way it should be. And so a lot of people are justifying their behavior by saying, well, look, this is what this person says we should do, that that anything different than me, anything that thinks differently than me, anyone who reacts differently than me is wrong. I am right, and I I have the right to actually hate them or eliminate them or whatever. So I'm saying right now we're in a climate where division uh, divisiveness is is sort of uh, held up, and and I I hope we will move out of that. But um, yeah, because so we're holding look, up certain to, people as role models, and maybe yes, they're not role yes. models, right? Yes, and, and, and what I I'm think saying, you make excellent points. Yeah, and, and what I'm saying is, so so if we're in a climate of that, you can't just look at my family or my community, but but you really have to look globally. And, and when you see that this is an accepted expression, perhaps, in our culture right now, then it, everyone who wants to exclude family members because they're different is justified in doing it because culture says it's okay. So you, you, you kind of have to – you can't just look at, at the family dynamics. You kind of have to look at what's going on around them. At the, the society, cultural and, – and believe me, it's been um, – we just did a radio show with uh, Michelle Cruiser. Uh, attorney and uh, stellar victim advocate about what has changed in 35 years with regard to the criminal justice system, law enforcement, and all of that. It was a very good show. In fact, we're going to be doing a follow-up. But this is regard to more of dealing with the um, society, family dynamics, and that that kind of thing. But are there um, are there particular like major and minor um, changes that would take place within family dynamics after a homicide that people might not, I mean, looking in from the outside or those people that are trying to help families, are there a particular list of things that we could identify that, you know, when this happens in a family, this is typically what might change um, just so that people that are trying to help those families might be aware well, I think if we were to like do a family therapy session with a family for you know a few sessions after a loss, I think one of the most essential things is to allow everyone to express their grief in their own way and then help others to to understand people grieve in different ways and um uh i will I need to acknowledge that this is their grieving process and that um uh, it's okay, but we also then need to talk to that family about not placing expectations on each other. Um, 
expectations in how you grieve, expectations in in um, um, how you interact with me, as long as you are accepting, okay, that's the way you're grieving, that's fine, I, I'm not judging, but um, um, that's not what I need right now. And, and so being aware of it, acknowledging it, but also not placing expectations on each other, I think is important. I'll, I, I'll give you a, right. just a quick story. Um, um, there was a family where there was a, 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 a mom who was dying, and she was older, and she was dying of long-term illness. And she was not conscious, and the heart monitor was, was running. And there was a, a, a brother and a sister. And the minute the heart monitor stopped, the brother left. And the sister stayed for a while. And then what we saw happen was these two were relatively close. There became this big rift between them. And, and once they came together to talk about it, and it was a couple of years later, the, the, the sister said, you know what, my mom died, and the minute that heart monitor stopped, you were out the door. You just needed, all you wanted to see was she was dead and you were gone. I stayed because I knew her spirit hadn't left yet, and it was important for somebody to be there until she left her body. And once I knew she had done that, then I, um, I left. Look at how expectation affected these two people. They both were grieving in a much different way, and the expectation that she had for her brother caused this, this severe um, um, rift, rift kind of in the family, right? Was not wow, even that's a great in, example. Yes, and it wasn't even in, in his consciousness to think about that because of who he was and, and the way he grieved. So I, I'm just what, saying... What was his, ex, what was his ex, explanation with regard to why he left right after the heart monitor? Monitor stopped. What did he say? Well, or, for him, what would for him, that was yeah, the moment him. of death. You know, we have to. We have to. Uh, different people have different definitions of the moment of death. Even uh, for him, the moment of death was when the body died. For her, the moment of death was when the soul left the body. They had two completely different definitions of the moment of death. And so, when the body died. That the event was over for him. He went on to, you know, wow. make arrangements and make phone calls and call the relatives and whatever. For her, the moment of death was when the spirit leaves the body, so she needed to stay until she felt that had happened. Um, so it's even down to how you define death and what the moment of death actually is for folks. And then is the sort of moral of that story two years later they came together and they were discussing and they were able to have an appreciation for that and a yes, better understanding. And, and quite honestly, that's not that's not the rule. In other words, what happens to lots of families is they they go off on this expectation and they get in this rift and they spend the rest of their lives not speaking to each other and not engaging again because of these differences in the way that they grieve and the expectations they had for each other. And that family never gets back together again because they didn't just sit down talk it through, um, to, just to to acknowledge each other's differences and to say, okay, that's okay, but but don't expect me to believe what you do. I will honor what you believe, but I but I but I have my own beliefs. Wow. So, it, in point of fact, um, the, our expectation that 
you know, if we could only sit down and talk about this, a lot of, most families are not in an emotional position to be able to do that, particularly if it's a, you know, it happened a long time ago and, and mm-hmm. you know, most mm-hmm. want to move on. Is that is that true? What what would bring them together to, to do that? Like another trauma after two years and we're like, well, we, yeah. we, we have to talk about this. Is that what happens? Even Even just another loss often brings up the leftover stuff from the previous one. So if, if someone else in a family died that, um, like, like a matriarch or a patriarch, so that that whole family came back together again for the funeral, um, now, again, they could not interact with those that they're angry with or whatever, but having them all together, if they were sitting around the table talking, it's very likely that the stuff from the first one that didn't get resolved is likely to come up in conversation, and that would give them the opportunity to work that through. Very often it is another loss that that allows the family the same space to come together and, and the same topic um, and, and compare it back to a previous uh, experience. So, yeah. But oftentimes maybe it just, causes anger and they don't resolve you, you, you need to be sitting at the table with them Dwayne <laughs> <I think. laughs> well you know people I, people will people will only change when they see that there's a benefit for them to do it um, and so if the benefit to make a change outweighs the energy it's going to take for me to change then I will pursue that change but they don't really see any benefit in changing the way that they think about the other family members and, and the relationship that they have. They're not going to participate, you know? What What would be some of the benefits? For example, if if uh, someone is getting married and you're, you have other people that you're taking on as an extended family and we have to get along, I mean, with that, I'm just trying to think of what would be the benefit of somebody really really changing the way they think? Um, um, if, if, you know, if, if for some reason I, um, I, I now am going to have to interact with you on a consistent basis, you know, if geographically we're separated, I don't have to deal with you, then fine, I don't need to change this. But now suddenly we've moved and now we're next door neighbors and I have to deal with you. I guess we have to try to come to some understanding. I mean, there are a lot of reasons that, um, uh, I might find it beneficial. There's a lot of reasons I might feel it's not worth the energy. So I think that's, that's all dependent upon the family and the family dynamics and the individuals, I think. Right, right. Um, is, is there typically somebody that is a, what's, what's the right word, sort of the negotiator that tries to, like, pull people together if they perpetually don't, and it doesn't have to do with the, 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 um, the loss necessarily, but if, if people don't get along, is there somebody that typically plays that role of trying to pull people together so that they get along in whatever um, the the event would be or or not? You know, if you look at a typical family, there's usually a, especially if the family, you know, there's, there's a diagram we use to look at a family's resilience. If If a family is not interacting in a resilient way, there's usually one member of the family that becomes sort of the new central. So um, I'll give an example. It doesn't really fit, but like my sister and I are, are, are close. Uh, well, we're not close, but we're, we, we certainly talk. We, we, you know, she, I live in D.C. She lives um, 
um, in Pennsylvania. It's not that far, but we just don't interact that often. Guess where we get our news from about each other? Through my mother. Online. All right. She oh. becomes oh. kind of the yeah. She uh-huh. becomes kind of the center. So if we were fighting, which we're not, but if we were fighting and and we're not talking to each other and whatever, the only connection we're going to have is my mom's going to say, well, you know, your sister did da 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 da, and I'll kind of go, yeah, fine, whatever. Um, <laughs> but that would be sort of the 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 the, the, the connector. So every family tends to have a connector, and it usually is like the matriarch or patriarch of the family. Once that person right. is no longer there, um, the family, if it, 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 once that person is no longer there to kind of hold it all together, the family can very likely just fall apart and, and very little interaction between the members after that uh, unless there's an active uh, pursuit of reconnecting. But I've seen many families just kind of once the once that central point um, was eliminated, either they died or whatever, um, or became incapable of being the center point, the rest of the family just kind of went off and did their own thing and didn't even connect anymore. So, um, well, but yeah, that, if you look at that's your Well, that's a fearful place because I, re- yes. I can relate to that. My mom is kind of the connector, it's, and yeah. I get along with my siblings. But, again, uh, I think she takes on that role, and, and that's where she may be comfortable and um, because everyone is doing their own thing, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's just that there's not that connecting thread unless there's, you know, there there's Christmas and there's a major birthday or holiday event, you know. And so if, if we can get out of ourselves and out of the grief event or trauma, and because and, sometimes we, like for myself, I get engrossed in, well, this is our dynamic. Is this? is this normal or is this just us? And I can't really judge that, Dwayne. Uh, you know, to compare with other people. <laughs> That's what and, I'm saying. When you have you, a life event, are our dynamics really not so very different, but it's just that maybe I can't see the forest for the trees because I, I don't really know that other families who have had a homicide it's exactly the same thing. Yeah. Or not no, exactly, I think you're, but similar. You're going to find you're going to find that different family dynamics react in different ways. If uh, one of the rules of, of grieving is that, um, you know, I had an, uh, a, a reporter interview me once about grieving and said, "Well, isn't it true that when somebody in the family dies, the family becomes closer together?" And I said, "No. What is true is when somebody dies, the family becomes more of what they already were. So if the dynamic is that the family is kind of disjointed to begin with and everybody's off on their own thing and nobody's really connecting, that's going to get worse after after the loss. Um, if the family is very close and, and they work very well together, and this, again, is looking at that family resiliency model, um, if the family is very resilient, um, that means that they will work, a, the, the, their efficacy of staying together and working together is going to be really uh, uh, good even after the loss because that's the pattern that's already there. And um, so it, you, you kind of just use, okay, how's the family before the loss, and you're going to see that kind of exaggerated after the loss. Uh, very, very interesting. Um, I, you know, it, everything you're saying makes, makes quite a bit of sense. Uh, with regard to um, just kind of speculating going off of what you say, I'm thinking of some families that have many, many members or like many siblings. Um, is it 
is it um, maybe a, a bigger, better safety net when you have um, something like a homicide happen? And, and there's many, many people within the family. It's likely that you will be able to pair up or find somebody else that is resilient so that your family does not, quote, unquote, fall apart if they're sort of disjointed to begin with. Well, I think is there a greater um, likelihood if you have a big a big family and there's someone there that you can kind of pair up with that's kind of like you? Well, not really, because what happens not really? is that that okay. doesn't that doesn't necessarily mean that there's going to be more resilience because you and that other family member may pair up, but but you're pairing up um, out outside of the in other words, a healthy family you would you would not pair up with one other person, but you would have almost an equal relationship with everyone in the family. That would be a resilient family that, yeah, maybe I don't get along with you so well, but but we still connect. We still uh, are cohesive. We still, um, um, uh, we we accept each other for um, their strengths and weaknesses. For who they and, are. And, yeah, I'm not going to call on you if I need you to do uh, something I know you're not good at, but but you're good at other things that somebody else in the family isn't. So there's this cohesion where where in between each member uh, and the way they relate to all the other members in the family, that's important. Same with communication, that there's equal communication between members of the family. So it doesn't really matter how big the family is. It's how how cohesive are they, how well do they fit together. Um, and um, if you start seeing those little three over here and two over here and those four over there, that actually is not resilient. That's the opposite of resilience, and that tends to cause the family to, to have little clicks and little she said, he said stuff. Oh, yeah, so that that, nece- that doesn't necessarily follow that, you know, a big family, you know, you're you're not going to be like the Waltons, right? <laughs> <laughs> I don't um, think the Waltons I'm, were a real family, no matter how you were raised. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was just trying to think of a big family that some of us might know. I mean, I'm dating myself again. But, um, yeah, that's true. Now, maybe we touched on this earlier, Dwayne, but... Um, with regard to people, um, part of the problem may be, and like you say, there's different expectations, there's different ways we grieve depending on the generation that we're brought up in and, and how that was dealt with by our parents, et cetera. But with people getting stuck at one particular place and they can't, mm-hmm. they can't seem to move on to that next place, if only they could get past that, that step on Kubler-Ross's scale, although it's not a progressive thing as we know, is it is it a matter of if they could only get unstuck from that place and maybe make, um, get a better sense of control with whatever they're dealing with, and then they would feel a sense of liberation and and, and things would be better within the family. Is it does it come down to getting unstuck from that place and being able to go beyond? You have to look at why am I choosing to stay stuck. Now, remember I said before, I have to to believe that changing where I am is worth the energy to make the change. Some people stay stuck in the grief because they believe that if they actually grieve and move forward and let the loved one go, they will lose them forever. 
And being in pain, thinking about them, holding on to them to that person is far better than what they think will happen is if they, if they move forward, they'll have to let that loved one go, and they don't want to do that. Some people do that. Some get stuck um, because um, they don't know how to, to move to the next um, that everywhere they look, there are triggers, there are reminders, there are uh, whatever, and I don't know what to do to move on. You know, our culture does not teach you how to grieve. Our culture is capitalistic, so it's all about pro- production and, and growth and, and um, um, uh, moving ahead and, and gaining, not losing. And so we don't get a lot of instruction on the, how, how to grieve, how to move forward when you have had a loss. Other people, especially with traumatic loss, get stuck in the trauma. They, they can't get past those pictures of how the loved one died. And one of the things I, I talk about with folks who have had a traumatic loss is I'll ask them, so where is your loved one now? And they look at me like I'm crazy. But what I'm asking them is stop holding them in the trauma. Where are they now? If you have a belief system of an afterlife, then where is your loved one? They're not still in that picture. They're in heaven, they're in hell, wherever you believe they may be, in Bardo states, whatever your belief system is. If you don't have that belief system, then where is the body now? Is it, is it buried? Is it, is it, um, um, has it been cremated? But it's no longer in that picture. And some people get stuck in that traumatic picture and, and don't move past that and don't realize that their loved one has moved beyond that and it's up to them to let their loved one move beyond that. So there's several reasons why a person stays stuck. Um, um, and, and while they would say, no, it's not a choice, it, it really is because there are resources available to help them move past if they wanted to. Um, so on some level, it is a choice. It's, it's not worth the energy it would take for me to move to the next place, or I don't see a benefit of letting them go. I don't see a benefit of letting them move on to their next place. I don't know if that made sense, but no, it it, it does. And I'm I'm thinking um, as you're talking that um, I think some people as they get older too may get more spiritual, may get more religious, and to be able to kind of um, grab grab onto that as a concept if they're not liking what's happening with the earthly concerns. And so you're saying that it it doesn't. It doesn't necessarily follow that if if someone um, doesn't want to, if they're in pain and, and they know that that that's what they have to hold on to, but why can't that person who might be more religious or spiritual say, get beyond that pain part and say, oh, well, I really do look forward to seeing X person again in heaven, and that's going to be wonderful. Not not everybody can cross that bridge, right? Well, you know, some people would say, yeah, the only reason there's religion is to make us believe that uh, things will be better, so, so it gives us a false sense of hope. And I'm not saying I believe that, but some people say that. The idea, you know, when, the idea of I'll see them later is fine until I wake up in the morning by myself and I'm very lonely and I don't have any other social connections telling me I need to wait 20 years until I die to see them isn't really helpful. But the pain that I feel about being alone is better than 
a feeling of nothingness. In other words, if I still hurt for them, then I know that I still love them. If I lose the hurt, do I lose the love? Do I disrespect them? Do I lose the last connection that I have with this person is this pain. If I lose the pain, I've lost them forever. And and that's a hard argument to 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 um, dissuade. To um, if a person, right. Yeah, if a person really believes this is their last connection, this pain is far better than the alternative of letting it go because then I've lost him or her forever. So if that's what they're wow. believing about their pain, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, what would what would be okay? You've got all this pain and hurt, and then their choice, looking at it is nothingness because they don't have enough social connections or something. What should what should be the natural flow of it or going more into being more resilient? To get past that pain, what would be the next, you know, feeling or the next step if, if they were were brave enough to be able to let mm-hmm. that go? Well, I need somebody to convince me that it is um, better – to let the pain go than to hold on to it. And this is why things like um, bereavement support groups are so good, um, and especially specialized ones like, you know, widow support groups or uh, um, uh, child, uh, child loss support groups or homicide support groups or suicide survivor support groups so that I can actually be with other people who are going through the same situation I went through, and I can see where they are in their grieving process, and I start to realize, you know what, she did let go of her pain, and it didn't turn out the way she thought it was going to either. It actually was for her benefit. Once I start to see other people and the process they've gone through with my same kind of pain, I'm much more likely to see the benefit of making a change. So that's why those kinds of things are are really, really helpful. Yes, so that's one kind of resource, but in thinking back over 35 years or so, there was very little available when my dad was murdered. And although my um, my mom and I participated in those kinds of things, and I think I'm a bit more verbal and open than she is, and, and I understand that is generational. So maybe it, if you feel like you're you're not really comfortable in that forum, are there other even now with more resources for those people that quote unquote are not comfortable going to the support uh, group format. I mean, I've been through it with PFLAG. I've managed groups uh, uh, professionally when I was a speech pathologist, people who've had strokes, um, you know, survivors of homicide. I, I've lived all those kinds of groups, both professionally and mm-hmm. personally. And I kind of sit in there, but not everybody, and especially when you first walk in the door, it's like, oh, my God, what, what is it? It's, it's, it's scary. So what is the, I mean, maybe you want to pair up one particular person that might want get along well with your mom, your dad, your cousin, if they don't feel comfortable in this big group. What is the alternative if they just feel like, oh, I, I, can't, I can't talk in front of this big group. It makes me feel uncomfortable. Uh-huh, and you're absolutely right. Some people are not, and they don't want to share. You know, the, the generation before me is a very private generation, and they don't right. believe they should be putting their stuff out in front of strangers. Right. So I, I get that. You know, uh, a buddy system works very well, too. Um, 
I, I uh, worked for the Wendt Center for Life and Healing here in Washington, D.C., and it's a counseling center just for uh, bereavement. And um, they had a volunteer system that was a buddy system. So if somebody called in and said, I, I just I, I don't know what to do, I don't know which way to turn, I don't want to do counseling or whatever, we could say, well, you know, we have volunteers that will just, you know, have coffee with you occasionally or whatever and just kind of help you walk through this if you would like. And so maybe that's a resource that's available um, that your faith base. I mean, having having a, a, a good pastor or or priest or or uh, a rabbi or or someone who um, who will help you um, kind of move through it, or who will say, you know what, your case is very much like Mrs. Jones, and you know what, I'm going to put the two of you together. When a pastor says that, you can't really say no, you know. <laughs> so <laughs> so. Um, the, the trying to find it, honestly, if I'm sitting in my house by myself, um, I am not going to change. The only thing that's going to help me change is to learn that there's a benefit in changing, and I can only see that if I interact with others who have been through that. Right. Do you do you think that um, going online and finding people on the internet? Um, is, is a benefit for some people. I mean, joining organizations and grassroots grassroots groups to me is really, uh, especially those that are well credentialed, and uh, mm-hmm. is is a very good thing if if you gravitate toward that kind of thing. Because in my situation, being a single person and kind of being a lone ranger, and sometimes feeling like there's not a lot of support out there um, just geographically where I live, and a lot of my support comes from people that live across the country, and that's hard because mm-hmm. you can't go mm-hmm. and – Dwayne, you and I can't go and have a cup of coffee as much as I would like to. You know, so <laughs> right. it, it's, that, it's that kind of thing. Um, yeah. what, what What's your feeling about, okay, I don't have somebody right here that is kind of like me, um, so I'm going to go online, but yet, do we trust that? Especially if we're a new a new quote victim survivor. Yeah, you've 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 raised both issues there. There are some very good um, support groups for everything, for everything online. Whether it's grief, whether it's missing child, whether it's you know uh, rape survivors, whatever. There are some really good resources, but it's finding which ones are good and which ones aren't. And and the the plus to that is I can be anonymous. I can say what I want to be, and I can be whatever person I want to be with these people, um, and they never really know who I am, where I live, whatever. I can be anonymous, and so that kind of makes it safe. But at the same time, you kind of have to be careful because you're looking for these people for support, and there's no one kind of monitoring it, and they might say something that actually hurts. They may, uh, because these aren't professionals or whatever, they may say, well, You've been on here for years and you're still no better. You might as well just give up. Um, you know, you have no control over how how people are going to be in those. And so for some people, they can end up being even more hurt uh, in those situations. The advantage, again, is like you said, geographically, people who live out in the country, they don't have a lot of resources. They can't get to other people. You know what? Sometimes online is the best. So, again, it would be looking at a website that has a big name like Compassionate Friends, like uh, survive, um, um, uh, survivors of homicide, 
um, groups uh, that have a big name, if they have a blog list or if they have a chat room, hoping that that would be good. One of the things that you kind of have to, again, be careful of, though, there are always scammers. And so let's say I want to set up a program where I'm going to hit some widow who's just inherited some money and I'm going to get that money and and I'm going to convince her to send me that money. One of the easiest places for me to get her in her vulnerability is in one of those chat rooms. So I'm going to come on like, you know, I'm a widower, I've just lost my husband, my wife, I'll 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 groom her and then oh suddenly something's happened and I'm just about to lose my house and I just don't have any money and you know, could she lend me just until, and, you know, older folks might fall into that, might might fall for that. So all I'm saying, I just right. got way off base, but all I'm saying is you really have to be careful. Yes, you could find some really good support there, but you also have to be careful of people who use that specifically to victimize people. Absolutely. And, I mean, I I think the, the key also to, uh, a couple things I might suggest is, you know, finding a core group so that you kind of build a surrogate family um, of those people that are supportive, that have the commonality that you do, and kind of sticking with those people that you trust, and uh, they sort of become your, you know, your your extended you know, siblings kind of thing. Um, I, but, again, I always worry about the people, and there's so much unfortunately crime that happens and and tragedy in a, a rural community way out you know in the middle of nowhere lots of domestic violence happens mm-hmm. and there's mm-hmm. not good there's not good um um you know there's not t- towers so that you have good good reception for the internet or cell phones and things like that and people are much more isolated so even if you say or they just don't have the money. I mean, people mostly have cell phones. A lot of people, especially if they're very poor, they're kind of them. They don't have computers. So you know, what do those people do? I don't know. I I, I really don't know if they're way out and you know. Uh, yeah, unfortunately, kind of speak. Unfortunately, they tend to, have to need uh, to to get to the nearest town to the library and use the library computers to be able to connect. Uh, with folks, um, uh, I've done some counseling with folks who that's what they had to do. They didn't have the resources at home because they were outside of a network, and so they drove to the nearest town, which you know was you know half hour away, to the library because the library has computers that the public can use. Um, but but then we didn't really have a lot of privacy because they were sitting right next to somebody else using a public computer. But that was all they had, so we used what they had. Right. So, I mean, I guess, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. You have to be creative with that or go to a, you know, universities also have, you know, resources with regard to that. I mean, I don't know how easy or difficult these days it is if you want to try to start up your own support group, and, you know, mm-hmm. to, to to try to do that. Um, so but, so but let again, me just say. Let's go let's go back and, and look at what what I, I'm kind of getting an image of of uh, a fam, you know your family members. Let's say that well let's use it for me. Let's say it was my mom, and um, yeah. she's 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 my mom is 85 years old. She can do the internet. Uh, uh, she can actually you know she's good with the emails. Um, she does does surf the web sometimes. Mine too. And she does 
get in trouble sometimes because she'll open things <laughs> she shouldn't have and then we have to fix the computer. But, you know, she's not afraid of it. But now you're saying right. she needs to find a bereavement group online because she's out in the country. That, that, the, that's overwhelming for her. And, and of course. something she really doesn't want to anyhow. So what I'm saying is so, so she doesn't see that the expenditure of energy is worth the change. That's what I'm talking about. Because what she'd have to go through to try to connect with somebody online is almost beyond her capacity. So it's not worth my even trying, so I decide to stay in my pain or stay in my Stay what I'm doing. Right. And I, yeah. I don't mean to say my mom lives in, in suburbia and she's not way out in the country, but we're just using that as an example. There yeah. are many people yeah. that, that are, and, and they do do that. And your mom and my mom sound like they have a lot in common in their abilities, but I even have those feelings with technology. I get very overwhelmed, as Delilah will tell you, with any new change and it's just very stressful for me so I can only I can understand that people of my mom's age and your mom's age they and on top of processing all of the things that that happened with our homicide it's got to be very overwhelming so we we all we all kind of do the best we can but I'm you know um, I'm wondering we have about two minutes or so with regard to the rest of our show how would you like to frame this in terms of people who are listening and are dealing with, and perhaps their homicide did happen a long time ago, and they are struggling with their family members and knowing the valuable information you gave us, what would be your advice with regard to don't expect a lot of change, but this is how you might be able to affect a little change to make it better? Is there something you can tell our audience, Dwayne? I'm I'm a big believer in in direct communication to resolve uh, uh, misunderstandings or resolve uh, conflict. And I think what I might advise a client to do, depending on their ability to do it, but I would say, okay, what what sibling, what family member would you like to reestablish a connection with the most? Then here's what we need to do. I need you to reach out to them. I need you to send them an email and, and to simply say, I'm going to call you tomorrow night at 8 o'clock, and here's why. I want to reconnect. I know we don't agree on just about everything in the world, but I do value your presence in my life. I want to reconnect. I'm going to call you. I hope you're available just so we can find some common ground to kind of reestablish a bond. So then the next day you make the call. If they answer, that says, they may not be in total agreement, but at least they're willing to give this a shot. If they don't answer, what that's saying to you is, I don't want to do this. You can walk away from that at least feeling like I tried, where maybe right now you don't have that feeling or, or, or you haven't tried in a while or whatever. Um, but just knowing that you, 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 the control that you have at this point is to reach out the olive branch. What they do with it is up to them. Um, so I always encourage that. And then in a session, I would practice that with them. I would, I would go over, okay, here's, what if they said this? What if they said this? What if they said this? So that when, when they do do it, they feel comfortable that no matter what comes back, I, I can handle it. Um, and, and even talk about what if they don't answer? What if they just show you they don't want to do this? What does that mean? And, right. and how do you cope with that? Um, so, so I think... Well, I think um, at least that's a starting point. 
And yeah. I think that's very good advice. And perhaps we can, can continue this conversation as, unfortunately, our hour is up right now. So, again, I want to thank you so much, and I encourage everyone to circulate this show. I think it's very valuable. And, Dwayne, thank you. Thank you for being on the air with us again, and I'm sure we'll have you on if, if you're willing. Um, so uh, sorry for cutting you off there. It's been a very valuable hour. Let's keep in touch. And uh, so everyone, um, be sure to have a good weekend, and we'll see you again next Saturday on Shattered Lives. Okay, Dwayne? Okay, thank you. Okay, thank you so much. Talk to you out there. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.